The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in August 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. A name that I think most theatergoers would recognize instantly is that of William Ivy Long, today's guest, along the the way over the past, oh, 30-some-odd years and more than 50. In fact, William told us just before the show he's lost count, 56, 57 Broadway shows. William Ivy Long has picked up five Tony Awards, including most recently for Grey Gardens, for Hairspray, for The Producers, for Crazy For You, and the first Tony Award for Nine back in 1982. In six other nominated shows, including Best Costume Design for La Cage Folle, for A Streetcar Named Desire, for The Music Man, The Revival in uh, 2000, for Cabaret, the revival of that show, the current revival of Chicago, and for Lend Me a Tenor. Welcome to William Ivy Long. Well, thank you. William, it seems to me that actors define a character, but so do costumes. When you look at, a, at an actor in costume, what he or she is wearing can very much define that character. Is that essentially true? Well, unless you're on radio. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then, then, then costumes don't matter much. But not too much unless you want to hear the buttons ripping, <laughs> bodice ripping and all that. Uh-huh. But in terms of theater. Uh, well, absolutely. It's And I always uh, sort of describe my job as basically helping someone become someone else. And uh, one of the ways uh, the actor prepares is uh, by what are they going to wear and why are they going to wear that. And luckily we have the director, the playwright, the director, choreographer, uh, and the actor um, themselves to uh, steer me in that direction. So sketching, showing samples, showing vintage uh, garments, and then trying them on, photographing showing the director what it is, and then the the zero hour, which is the, the dress parade or the dress rehearsal, and we see if that is indeed uh, a, a beginning. I don't think I've ever, ever uh, had a costume from a fitting to the stage that uh, isn't altered after I've first shown it, you know, sort of live. I would guess for you, the beginning is with the book, with the script, for whatever the show It always starts is. with the word, absolutely. And and as a graduate of the Yale School of Drama, where the play is the thing, uh, most schools, drama schools are, but especially the Yale Drama School, it's very play and word oriented. Um, you know you, you don't go to that first meeting with too many ideas other than what you have just read, just the words. How much can you do before an actor is cast. Well, <laughs> of course you can read the script and you can, well, you meet with the director mm-hmm. and the director, I try to go to that first meeting with the director with no, with as few uh, preconceived notions as possible. In other words, as clean a slate as I can so that I'm not thinking a concept where, you know, some, certain other approach might be what the director has in mind. So I come to that meeting, we have the meeting, uh, sometimes if it's a period uh, and I get a hint that it's, we're going to do it in period, I bring books, pictures, sometimes garments. But uh, And then you can work with the director and do s- general preparation and general sort of collage reference. But I don't start r- usually uh, sketching until I, s- I know who the actor is and meet the actor. 
Yeah, because I would think that there's there's the issue of body type. Even though you can talk about an era, you can talk about a style. Until you've got the person in front of you, it it something does or doesn't look right on a certain person. Exactly, and I think it depends on what uh, the level of support that the director wants you to bring to that process before. Uh, you know, you get into the the rehearsal space. It all depends. I mean, I do lots of things. Sometimes I I once got a phone call from a playwright, uh, and there was an actress to be in uh, in a, in the, a re- 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 replacement actress, and uh, it was about a park. The play was about a Park Avenue matron, and uh, this actress was known for her uh, well, other than Park Avenue roles. And I got the call from the from the playwright saying, "Do you think so and so can play the role?" And I said, "Well." Why are you asking me? Certainly she can. And uh, and he says, oh, but she's not uh, to the manner born. And I said, well, you know, shoes will help. (laughs) I didn't know what to say. (laughs) But I do. I mean, I was ultimately tickled, I guess, that I could bring things to it, you know, to that process to help support the actor. And the actor went on to the actress, actor, uh, went on to uh, do a superlative job. Well, you mentioned shoes. Many actors, particularly women actresses, have said that when they put on the costume, and especially the shoes, that really gives them the character. That helps them feel the character. Well, I'm awfully glad to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shoes particularly, sort of women who's, uh, I guess, our chauvinist, uh, male chauvinist uh, attitude of beauty and leg uh, beauty has forced them into these high heels. Of course, from the Etruscan period on, so I don't think we can right now take total blame. But... um, I think it pitches you forward, and I, I just had, had several fittings this morning already, and uh, when the lady is standing, because the shoes haven't been stretched and they hurt a little, and then the men, just on the floor, it's one look, and then immediately it, the attitude changes when you slip into the heels, no matter what height they are, even just a, you know, an inch, inch heel. We had an actress tell us that the costume she had to wear in a particular show involved a corset, because it was a... You know, <gasps> couple hundred years ago when women yes. wore corsets and or a bustle or something like that really affects their performance because it makes them feel the character differently than just reading it on the page or sitting at a table doing a reading. Absolutely. And I think uh, I w- it was one of the few disappointments I had when I went to the Yale School of Drama and realized that they were, this was in the 70s, the early 70s, and of course everything was, you know, sort of guerrilla theater and uh, though by the book, but nonetheless, guerrilla theater and, and everything was sort of natural and what is true and real to you at that moment. So there was very little rehearsal in bodices and corsets. And we would, meanwhile, in our department, uh, be sewing bodices away and learning about whale bones and, you know, boning and spiral bonings and all this sort of stuff. And then they, the actors wouldn't use them. And uh, I remember putting them on my, in one of my first uh, workshop productions. And they were going, well, I can't do this in that. And I'm going... Uh, well, hmm, let's see, Lady Bracknell. <laughs> Maybe you wouldn't have been rolling around on the floor. So so what happens, though, when an actor or an actress doesn't feel comfortable in what you've designed for them, but it's essential to their character that they wear it? How do you deal with that? Well, there you go. <laughs> That's the de- <laughs> description of, okay, here we go. Uh, well, it's one big compromise at that point if it has gotten that far. Uh, I try to try out things in the fitting room and uh, sort of head things off at the pass before we get to that. But that often happens. And, um, well, we work on it until we get it right. I always say smiles after a fitting, no tears. (laughs) Well, we're already deep into some specifics of how you do what you do. corsets and shoes. So, So let's just jump back to the very beginning. You grew up in the theater. I know. Isn't that funny? 
I was born in a trunk. <laughs> quite, quite, well, quite, quite well, literally I mean, growing I, up. I read one I article that said literally you were you were raised in a dressing room <laughs> no. at the Raleigh Little Theater for three years. That is so, true. So that's true. Tell us, tell us. Well, about it's a your beautiful beginnings. building. It actually happened. My my parents uh, were married after the war. They had a wartime romance. They were friends in uh, uh, in college before the war, and then the war was this extraordinary event and uh, a lot of correspondence. And afterwards, they got married. Uh, my father's first job after getting married was at McGill University where he taught Shakespeare. And that was where I was conceived, I think, in a snowdrift or something romantic <laughs> like that. I do hope so. Uh, and then I was born in August and um, September was the new season at the Raleigh Little Theater where my father's first job was. And uh, there, this, there were no rooms for heroes. Homes for heroes had not been built. And so the only place they could find for this little new family was the stage left dressing room of the outdoor amphitheater at the Rod Little Theater. You got it exactly right. And they had just built it in 1945. And uh, the Rose Garden was brand new and the fountain. And Billy, don't go play in that fountain. Of course, that's where I lived, in the water, in that fountain. And there I was on the proscenium, right? You, you stepped out of the stage left dressing room, and there was the stage left proscenium. And literally, your first step out of your house was on stage. And I visit this this building from time to time. It's still there. It's 20 by 20, and uh, still uses a dressing room. And we lived there for three years. I think we would be living there now, except my brother was born, was on the way. And I think my grandparents decided that... Uh, we should have a proper home. <laughs> so you were quite literally born to the stage. Literally. literally born to the stage. Both my parents are in the theater. We're in the theater, my, both as playwrights and directors and as academics, teachers, and they wrote books and plays. And, and I read somewhere that your first costume design was for your dog when you were about five or six years old. Exactly. My dog, Mantio, named after the island of uh, the town on Roanoke Island where we spend every summer. And uh, my dog would sit still for anything. And so I think I was in the costume shop watching Irene Smart Rains, my great mentor, uh, head costumer and designer at the Lost Colony. And I watched her sew. And somehow I figured out if you take big stitches with a needle into a long piece of anything and you pull it tight, it pleats. I sort of thought I invented the pleat. <laughs> and I, we were working on the uh, Elizabethan era, the Lost Colony, so Walter Raleigh, Queen Elizabeth. And so I'd seen all the big collars around all the courtiers' necks, and I put it around my dog, and I said, ah, there you go, pleating. He's a courtier. And what was the dog's reaction? Sat there, like a very good actor, <laughs> a well-trained actor. Now, you, you've, again, brought up so many things at once you just said you were perhaps six years old and said we were working on the Lost Colony. Were you actually helping or were you hanging out at age six? I was playing with scratch. I was always taken to work because, of course, when you're a young family who lives in a stage less dressing room, you don't have many babysitters. So I think I played with scraps in the costume shop, and I know I remember playing, trying to sew things together. And I, then I played with little bits of wood and sawdust in my father's scene shop because he was also a technical director. And so I my mother made costumes, so scenery and costumes. And I would play with all of them, lots of glue, gluing things together forever. So, uh, and so it's at, natural to me. <laughs> at what point either did you start working at that theater or when did you, did you start doing it as more than uh, daycare? Well, <laughs> that's very good. I hadn't thought, hadn't thought of that. Uh, I think I went, th I was actually, it was the family business. And all through my growing up years, once we had a proper home, the front hall was always the scene shop 
and the dining room table was always the costume shop because that Singer sewing machine was put up on one side, and you could get a large piece of fabric on that very wide uh, ancestral mahogany table now used as, uh, at that time, used as a costume-cutting table. Um, so I thought that was the natural way. So I actually didn't take... I didn't think of the theater as a, as a job to be pursued. We did it in the summertime at the Lost County. In the wintertime, my parents taught at Winthrop College, now Winthrop University in South Carolina. And uh, I did other things. So I was uh, really interested in, in English and, and history. And my first degree at William & Mary was in history. And then I went studied art history at Chapel Hill, which is the family school where I, I should have gone, but I was being rebellious. So I, my, my rebelliousness means I go to another college. And then after uh, being at Chapel, studying art history, Renaissance and Baroque architecture, of course, I always wanted to be an architect, uh, always, always. But I couldn't figure out the slide rules, so I knew I was in trouble. So then I applied for the Yale School of Drama because I wanted to go work with Ming Cho Lee, the great set designer. And so that was the first acknowledgement that I was going to actually go into the theater after two shots at academics. <laughs> never, never a desire to be a performer? Uh I'm performing right now. <laughs> well, I was going to say that, but I thought this it might be impolite. This is about it for me, though. But, this is it. But there was no, you, you, you never got thrust on stage. Play. I was a child actor at eight in the Lost Colony, and then in high school I was always an actor. And uh, if you're a little, round, plump, sissy boy in the South when sports are everything, uh, you become an actor. <laughs> so uh, the class clown is one of the classics, and, uh, you know... You always drew. I was drew well, so I was the one to do the yearbook and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I've been sort of performing out of nervous energy my whole life, and fortunately now people have me do it in the theater. And when you were at Yale School of Drama, your classmates, some interesting names, your roommate was Sigourney Weaver, Meryl Streep was there, as was Charles, uh, Chris Durang, Paul Rudnick, uh, Wendy Wasserstein. That's right. You, you, uh, it's a dream time, isn't yeah. it magical? Yeah. I'm waiting for those books. Why haven't they come out yet? <laughs> so, Sing the golden age. <laughs> so this was early to mid-70s. What, well, what, I took, what, yeah, what were those days I, in the Yale it, Well, of course, I came, uh, well, uh, my college roommate from William & Mary drove me up in his van because I was scared to death. I'd never been up north. And, you know, I'm a nice North Carolina farm boy, one generation removed from the farm. Of course, the, interestingly enough, I'm back on the farm. I have the family farm now, uh, cotton and peanuts. And um, so he drove me up there, and he, I was too scared to go into the lobby, the green room. Uh, and so he went in, and he pulled off one of the roommate wanted, the last roommate wanted at a Victorian house, and I called up and said, can I come? Yes, there's one room left. And it turned out that there was this tall brunette lady and, uh, and myself sharing uh, the bathroom, and that was our floor. And uh, that turned out to be Sigourney Weaver. And downstairs were three people, and one was Meryl Streep. But I didn't know any of this until that Friday night when the tall, beautiful brunette lady took me to the uh, cabaret, and the incoming you know, victims were presented with this great work of art by Chris Durang and Albert Inarado. And Chris Durang was in an evening gown, and uh, Albert was in a nun's habit with his mustache and beard. And uh, they were doing one of their legend, soon-to-be-legendary uh, combinings of, of non-sequitur theater quotes. And, and I just thought, I don't know where I am. <laughs> I am not in Kansas anymore. And that was a real eye-opener. But Sigourney had, uh, took me by the hand 
and um, that was my introduction to what was yet to come on Monday. So that was my Friday night. But it was that jarring. I mean, I understand that the Lost Colony is one kind of theater, but you'd been around theater. Your parents, was it still... I had been around theater with scripts. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sort of classical, sort of traditional uh, theater. I did not quite know. I think this is why I wanted to go to the Yale School Drum, because I knew there was more. And uh, it wasn't just... I mean, Rayfish was uh, the Chalk Garden, uh, Bagnall. And, uh, you know... The, I, I knew there was something more to happen, and of course, I'd read about the Yale School drama, and I was at the Vietnam War was, uh, and the Black Panthers had just been there. You know, it's it's quite it was the quite place a lively to time, be, quite a lively time, era. and uh, yeah, exactly. And Robert Brewstein, I'd been, I'd read his uh, crit- criticism, and then Ming Chu Lee. There were books out already on him, and I just thought, well, I have to be. And Ming Chu Lee had designed the original hair. And uh, which has just been revived, and that was Ming. He was the the hot young, fresh young, young blade doing that. And uh, I had to be there. I just, but yet when that Friday night when Sigourney took me to to that performance, I I didn't know what was happening. And huh. I thought, okay, I guess this is right. I'm supposed <laughs> to be somewhere. I that's confusing. So what did you get from Yale? Oh my goodness! Well, all my best friends, and uh, and a regret and a respect, as I said earlier, for for the word. And uh, the fact that you're there to tell a story, and the story is the play, the vision of the playwright, and uh, as interpreted by the director and the choreographer, and a hierarchy, a sense of hierarchy, I think is what I, I uh, really, f- uh, really absorbed. There's a leader, there's a second leader, there's a group of leaders, and uh, I work for people. I bring things, a support, comfort with being a support team member. I think is what I really got out of it. Well, while you were at Yale, what did you think you wanted to do when you got out of school? Oh, my gosh. Now, goodness. Now you've got me. Because I'd read somewhere. I'm going to tell you. You did read that. Yeah, that that you'd only taken one costume design. I know. Weren't we terrible? Wasn't that terrible? And you didn't intend to be a costume designer at that point. No, I was set design. I remember I was a frustrated architect, Mm -hmm. went there to work with Ming Cho Lee, uh, one costume design class. I'd taken art history. Of course, I all that. Uh, And... And I don't know. And, and when I, but yet when I graduated uh, and came to New York, of course, I went ahead and scouted out a place to live. And I said, well, I want to be right in the middle of it. I want to learn what New York is like. Farm boy, North Carolina, here we go. So I said, I've got to move to the Chelsea Hotel. So I did. And one of the reasons I wanted to move there is because I was panicked in May after do- finishing my thesis and all that, and that I knew nothing. You know how you you get when you you've just accomplished something sort of really extraordinary, I guess, for that time and age. And then you go, oh, well, okay, now I know nothing. And I was looking for another mentor. I had withdrawal problems from Ming Cho Lee and Robert Brewstein. And uh, so I looked around, and I'd been reading the uh, Village Voice, and I'd been reading Interview, and I'd been reading books, and I said, okay, Charles James, the great Anglo-American couturier, lives at the Chelsea Hotel. I will stalk him and make him teach me. So that's what I did. ask a dense question. That's what I did. Precisely what is a couturier? Couturier is uh, a really good dressmaker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> French for really good dressmaker. So uh, there, are few, uh, there are few around. But back then, uh, but the, the giant in the field in America was and sort of remains, so he's, he died, is Charles James. And hmm. so 
I wanted, I needed another teacher. I couldn't separate myself. You see, I'd grown up on college campuses. I'd gone to three universities, and then I needed another teacher. Well, you had been in college for about 10 years. 10 years, exactly. I know, I know, and I didn't want to leave. So you were kind of maybe reticent to get out into the real world, it sounds like. Yes, I didn't think I could do it. And in fact, what happened was, it it is true, it took me six months to stalk Charles James, Mr. James, I called him, until he started letting me work with him. And uh, but in that period of six months, uh, I was working, making models for my teacher, Ming Cho Lee, and for Robin Wagner, with whom I work now uh, as a colleague. Uh, But back then I was a model maker, a scenic model maker. And um, I went to an interview with a very famous costume designer. Ming felt pity on me and said, oh, well, try costume. You know, you're really good, William, with costumes. You know, why don't you try? So I went and met with this lady. And it was so the interview was not did not go well. Uh, obviously, I'm not. It wasn't a good interview, <laughs> and I was just a little too the little round sissy boy, you know, still trying to play a clown. So I don't think I did very well, and so uh, the result was I just went back and thought, okay, there's nowhere to go. I can't do anything. So I it, it started my two years of what I call my breakdown, my breakdown years, during which time I worked with Charles James day and night. And uh, I guess some people describe that breakdown as a very lucky time. But I couldn't start in the theater. I just focused on pattern expanding and redrawing and reshaping and doing just what and emptying the trash can and walking the dog and anything around around the great master. I just... uh, And you also, I read, making dolls. Oh, I always make dolls. At your Yale classmates were selling for you. Oh, you read that. (laughs) Well, of course, I'm living at this very fancy hotel. Fleabag, though it was, it was fabulous and uh, quite expensive. So uh, I had to make some money and Mr. James wasn't, you know... I wasn't em- worth being employed, so I made uh, I made dolls out of scraps that I would get at costume houses and places people would send me. And uh, Wendy Wasserstein my, and Paul Rudding, my two best friends from from Yale, uh, Wendy had her roommate was uh, Julie of the Julie Gallery, the Julie Artisans Gallery, and she would take my dolls. She got Julie. She browbeat her into selling them, and I sort of lived on on selling these dolls at the Julie Gallery. Uh, Jim Dale, I now know, he, uh, they're married. He and Julie are married. And so uh, I told him the story. Funny. <laughs> so then how did you get actually designing costumes for theater professionally? How did that first I think, job Friends, you see, I would go periodically on interviews, but I'm a terrible interview. I'm just, as I said, that little fat clown, you know, just is not hireable. And um, even though sketch is nice, <laughs> good color sense, you know, check, check. But uh, I had to wait until my friends with whom I had done work at the Yale Drama School on the weekends, the cabaret, in the basement, at a college, you know, one of the undergraduate colleges or at a church. I had to wait until they got hired. And literally on cue, the minute my friends in my class were hired. They started demanding that I work with them. Peter Shifter, Walt Jones uh, were the first two. And uh, lo and behold, I did. They forced me to. Mr. James actually died in 1978. And uh, I was then swimming around again. So um, I actually went to work. And they were really the first costumes I ever designed because my the set, the set designers were already uh, working. And so... Uh, I don't know. Isn't that funny? It doesn't make sense. So my friends, I, I would say my friends are the secret to everything. 
which is the case with, with many uh, college graduates, that they establish networks. This one happened to be in the theater as opposed to some other business. But, I'm told yeah. the Yale Mafia is a big network, is but it? of course I didn't know any of those terms at that time. I just knew I had a lot of friends, and they were assisting directors, and then finally when they got those jobs, I think Kapath Playhouse was the first. Peter Shifter was doing a play out there for Jay Broad, and that was the first one. It was a Richard Nelson play. It was called The Killing of Yablonsky, and uh, it was uh, black comedy and insane, and uh, that was my debut. That was it. Well, you mentioned Walt Jones, and one of your very first Broadway shows, looks like perhaps just the second one you did, was the 1940s Radio Hour, exactly. which began at that at cabaret. The Yale Yale exactly. Cabaret. Well, our, Had you worked on it as a student? Absolutely. What happened was, um, I think you can tell there's a combination of a of, uh, great, great deal of uh, confidence mixed with a great deal of absolutely frozen in your tracks. That was sort of me and 50% parts. And uh, But one of the things we did at Yale School of Drama was, uh, well, our cockiness said, well, we're not going to go to Williamstown, or we're not going to go to New York and work for people. So we created our own theater, the Summer Cabaret. Oh, so the cabaret was new. We made, I okay. designed the stage, I converted a squash court, and I designed the theater and all the scenery and costumes for uh, actually three years. And Walt Jones and Carol Lees and Peter Shifter and... Uh, the other director, they, they sort of put it together the whole season. And uh, the first year we did the 1940s Radio Hour. And we should say that that tradition of the Yale Summer Cabaret for the drama school stu- dra- graduate students at Yale continues. That's right. Up that's what now. I read. They, now they want uh, sustenance and they send out letters. <laughs> but we just <laughs> to the of, illustrious alumni I who know, can help them out. And so, uh, and Paul Rudnick was my assistant. One summer, but when we became fast friends, and he also had to manage the concession stand. Well, well so, Paul told us some of those stories and said, actually, even after Yale, you you continued to employ him a bit when he had nothing else going on. Exactly. In fact, he was one of my assistants on the Broadway uh, production of the 1940s Radio Hour. He shopped all of the vintage clothes and St. Mark's Place. And for me. So, uh, oh, I made him wear. Oh, absolutely. Well, he said he was pretty hopeless with the scissors. But I well, guess. And don't <laughs> let him really sew. I had to tell. I had to make one rule. I says, Rudnick, now, you know, when we're altering pants, when the pockets kiss at the back, we've taken them in too much. <laughs> <laughs> I had to put I had to put my foot down. <laughs> So in those early years, was it was it all your friends? How much were you out? looking for work? How much of it was simply that you'd fallen in with a great group of people? Well, I, w- I went to look, I-, I started looking for work in 1975 when I graduated in the old school drama. And as I said, I would go to these, these interviews and just not get the work. Uh, classmates would get them. Uh, I would come back and be depressed. And then I had that infamous date with Destiny when the famous costume designer basically told me I knew nothing and really should go back to school. Um, and that was that prompted, you know, going into this tailspin. But of course, working with Charles James, right. this dream tailspin, I guess. But the friends making me do this one by one. I did not go after the work, no. And in fact, I'm going to tell you right now. For the first decade or so, it was friends asking and asking, and it still is sort of like that. Because once you work with someone, of course, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you haven't worked with someone, or catch twenty-two, I guess I should say, uh, if you haven't worked with someone, how can you know them? If you don't know them, uh, somehow, you know, assistant directors and extra people, you know, it, it worked like that. But I would say most of the jobs I have gotten and still get and probably will get are from people I already know and have worked with. 
Well, there are some names that keep popping up repeatedly, not just the ones we've been mentioning, but names like Jerry Zach. Oh, Jerry Zach, 28 Susan, Productions. And Susan Stroman. Tr- like Scott Ellis. Do- Scott yeah. Ellis, yeah. a dozen yeah. each, a dozen each. I love them. Well, this is my family. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jerry Zach particularly, goodness gracious, I did the first thing he ever directed. Sister Mary Ignatius explains it all for you. And uh, he told me later, uh, actually in public, he told me, so of course I was humiliated. He says, and when William Ivy Long told me that uh, the Virgin Mary wore uh, Virgin Mary blue, I just believed him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just making it up. I said, well, this is a good blue. It's Virgin Mary blue. And and the Jewish director didn't I know didn't any know, better. Didn't know, didn't know, didn't know. great. So that was uh, the beginning of our, our great, uh, and I'm doing Elixir of Love next uh, summer at uh, Santa Fe with him. But obviously, you expanded your your list of friends beyond just the Yale school. So, how did you get get to meet these other people? Strange things. I'm going to tell you. Strange things happened. Um, it was all through friends. My first Broadway show was the became the night uh, the uh, Inspector General, and Ming was originally supposed to do Liviu Chule, the great Romanian director. Uh, was directing uh, Inspector General, and Ming was supposed to do the set, and Levy was to do the costumes. Uh, Ming got very busy, dropped out, so Levy was going to do the set, and then said, no, I, I can't do everything. And Ming suggested one of his students was Karen Schultz. Karen Schultz was a classmate of mine. And uh, then Levy and Karen were working, said, oh, I just can't do the costumes. Just get me somebody. So Karen said, well, I'll bring, well, just get me somebody, he said. And so the somebody comes with my portfolio and everything to meet Leave You. Doesn't look at my portfolio, just starts giving me notes. That's how I got my first job. Mm-hmm. Um, just through Just Get Me Somebody. The, uh, another Just Get Me Somebody story is uh, I was in at Barbara Matera's, the great, legendary, late Barbara Matera, with Arthur Matera. And um, it was 1990, and I was down there doing something in the shop. And the phone call came down from Robin Wagner. And Robin Wagner to Arthur and said, you know, the costume designer is off in Bali. She doesn't have a, there's no way to reach her. Just, can you send somebody up? Who's down there? <laughs> and Arthur looked around and said, well, William's here. And uh, Robin yeah. said, well, send William up. <laughs> and so William went up and there was Mike Ockrent and Susan Stroman. And, and they just started showing me what the entrance into Dead Rock for the showgirls were for Crazy For You. And that's how I got that job. But you were you were well established by that point. It, it, you were you, you weren't an unknown. When no, you got but sent that's over but there. that's but it was really that how simple. that happened. Well, it wasn't simple. It's just luck. Huh. So so jumping back, I mean, you look at Inspector General, a period piece, nineteen forties Radio Hour, period piece, mass appeal, a very small, intimate show. How did nine? come to be for you because that's such a, a vividly remembered that changed my life. design. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I still can recreate the uh, butterflies in my stomach when I hear that overture play. That was life-changing and, and life-threatening to me. Well, what happened was the 1940s radio hour, somebody had seen it at the Yale Drama School and said, oh, let's do it. Let's try it out before we, let's see if we can do it on Broadway. So we did it at the arena stage and Walt Jones hired as his choreographer, Tommy Walsh. Then Tommy Walsh skipped two, and Tommy and I became great friends. Tommy Walsh had been in Chorus Line and was worked very closely with Tommy Toon. And Tommy Walsh was working on this workshop of nine. And Michael Stewart was the producer and the costume designer. And Michael just said, well, I can't do it all. Get me someone to, to work with me. 
And uh, Tommy said, well, just just said in general. And Tommy says, well, I know somebody. He said, just get somebody. Mm-hmm. And so the just somebody went to interview with Michael Stewart, wouldn't even look at my portfolio, started giving me notes as an assistant. And and I said, well, I don't th- I've never been an assistant in costumes, so I don't really know whether I can do this. I have to turn it down. So I walked back to my house, totally despondent. And um, I received then f- f- several months later. Uh, I received this phone call from the stage manager saying, well, we're having measurements tomorrow uh, at 10. Um, can uh, you know, we need you to be there. And that's how it started. I didn't know. I had to say what project. <laughs> but if they're having measurements, it sounds like the costumes already had been designed, were they? Or? No, they hadn't been. But we measure. You measure before. Oh. You know, when you're. No, they hadn't. Because I would imagine, wouldn't the sketches of the costumes? I come know. First? Doesn't that sound? Doesn't that, that would, sound funny? Well, it was a workshop, uh-huh. and I had to go measure for shoes. They needed shoes for uh-huh. the workshop, so I designed the whole show while they were creating it. So with that show, if you can At the Golden take- Horseshoe, I may have may add, above the New Amsterdam Theater, you know, that Disney restored. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a whole theater right above that theater. And that's where we did Nine, mm-hmm. the workshop. If, if you can go back to Nine, how was that, the visual look of that show, arrived at? Gosh. Well, Tommy Toon, of course, the visionary Tommy Toon. Um, I think it's, it's a combination. Well, hmm. I think it's because the film was in black and white, eight and a half. The Fellini. The Fellini film, eight and a half. The semi are completely biographical, autobiographical film, eight and a half. And it was in black and white. Um, And I think Tommy saw an illustration and had Larry, um, the set designer, uh, Miller, uh, do a, a model of a spa based on a spa Tommy had seen in Architectural Digest or pre whatever it was before Architectural Digest, um, and they, and it was white. It was white tiles, and I think the idea just sort of sprang forward that um, it should be because when I had met with uh, Michael Stewart, black it was not yet black. It was not just black and black mm-hmm. and white set because there were all sorts of Vogue pictures and colors around. And but by the time I was brought onto it, they had uh, Tommy had Tommy decided that. And then I guess one, one of the iconic, if you can use the word, like, iconic costumes was Anita Morris in that kind of like lace bodysuit oh that, that she wore. That's yes, you know, that's it, that's pretty good. I <laughs> lucked out on that one. <laughs> well, now, oh Anita Morris. Well, Anita. Well, okay. Here goes. Uh, of course, I had to design very quickly because as you you noted, what are you doing measuring? Have you designed again? So very designed very quickly, and we had to make the clothes very quickly. And there was a because there was a photo shoot. And I had drawn all these pictures and shown them to everybody, and then I tried to make them, and it was Barbara Matera, brilliant, brilliant lady. And uh, one of the costumes that didn't work, because it was all lace. I thought, I see lace on Anita, I see what she's doing. Didn't work. So we had the photo shoot. There was tears. There were tears. And she was not happy. So she asked Tommy afterwards. There were only two disasters from that, and that was the the main one. And um, she asked Tommy if we could please... She wanted to do her number in a turtle, long sleeve turtleneck and trousers. Can you mm. imagine what wow. would have happened if that if I hadn't uh, begged on my on knees, Tommy? Please give me a second chance. And so Anita, I said, and he said, yes, you may have a second chance, but Anita really wants to wear long sleeve turtleneck and trousers. So the extension, because I knew at least I knew enough to know that dancers want to extend their arms, extend their legs. So long sleeves to everything. So. Um, I begged and begged, and I, he said yes. And she 
condescended to come in because, of course, remember, I had failed miserably, and she was very disappointed with me. And uh, so she came in, and we had made a stretch. This is before anything stretch. So we made a net sort of bodysuit, up turtleneck, long sleeve, and to the floor, you know, bodysuit, non-stretch. There was no stretch back then in 1980. And uh, I started pinning. I said, please let me try. I just think lace, and I started pinning little bits of lace on her, and she was getting sadder and sadder. The body language was just, you could cut it with a knife, the failure of William. And I just remember, she was standing there. She said, oh, I have to sit down. And, you know, because this was not going well. Sometimes it happens like this. Well, you know, you can either jump out the window or go into the, you know, cutting room and see if there's something that... And I looked, found a fabric that I was using for capes. And it was a a net with flocking on it. And it wasn't stretched. And I said, oh, my goodness, here we go. And I brought it in and draped it over her. Immediately she stood up. We had four-hour fitting. She was no longer tired. And... uh, we we made basically made the costume on her Werner Kulovitz from now at Yuriko but then at Barbara Materos and Anita and I it was a three way a three way creation and uh, the only sad thing was there was only one it wasn't sad it was very there was a little frisson of excitement Anita said ah you know I've just got one request and of course anything for her now this beautiful redhead bombshell she said let's not tell Tommy <laughs> let's make it a secret. And I said, okay, you know, well, that was the end of my working relationship with Tommy Toon because uh, it appeared on stage in Dress Parade, and it was a big surprise. <laughs> and that was it. I haven't worked with Tommy since because I, you, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't because the actress was so in love with it at that point, you couldn't have taken it away from her. Well, it was also a, a big hit, mm-hmm. and but it, like, overpowered sort of the energy of the huh. stage. And I hadn't given a hint that this was coming. And you shouldn't uh, surprise Mother Nature, if you know what I'm saying. Well, so I learned a big lesson on lesson, that. Yeah. I learned a big lesson on that. Please show what you're doing. How about designing for Karen Akers, who is six feet tall, oh, yes. pencil thin? Is that a challenge or is that an opportunity? Well, you want her to stand up and walk around. She's so beautiful. Yeah. But remember, she was sitting on a cube. Uh-huh. So I've now learned that that sort of designing is called tabletop designing. Uh-huh. It's how do people look sitting across the table from you. So uh, we had to, and she's very architectural, you know, very high cheek. She looks exactly the same. I really want to see the closet, the painting in that closet, because she looks actually even better than ever and sings so beautifully. And But it, I had to make everything from the waist up because she's sitting on this cube. So it tailored, did beautifully simple tailored uh, jacket and skirt for her. Beautiful lady. When we look at your more recent credits, there seems to be a relative preponderance of musicals. Not that you you don't <laughs> do plays, but in this era, except for a few of the things we mentioned, you were doing a lot of plays. I did. I did the first six things Richard Nelson wrote, and most mostly Playwrights Horizons, also the American Place Theater. Yeah, because certainly when people think of big glitzy musicals, they're not thinking of oh, let's get the designer who did that to do Principia Scriptorii, for That's example, right, exactly. about political prisoners. Exactly. I'm wondering, is the a is the process identical for designing a play or a musical, or do you have to think differently as a costume designer? Well, they're they're similar, and then they're dissimilar, like you said. Yes, I have to think the same, and I think they're the same. Is you read a read the play and who are these people and how do they become someone else but obviously if you're singing you know that's not real so that's a whole 
level of poetry, like poetry is to speaking. It's so you have to you have to get into that mode and you have to think of that mode. Now, granted, since I've been on Broadway, uh, reality is uh, taken over musicals more than ever. Uh, realistic, uh, believable, recognizable. Um, that having been said, I did do Guys and Dolls in Technicolor, <laughs> and uh, there are a few fantasy sequences in, in many of my musicals. But nonetheless, there is a sense of truth that you, you want the characters to be real and the characters to be believable. And so that is both in, in the plays and the musical. But yes, that is confusing. Why would you hire someone? <laughs> to do? Well, I don't know. I guess my friends were directing the musicals, too. That's a hard one to... To, to answer, I explained how I lucked into uh, Crazy For You. Um, and nine was uh, through Tommy Walsh. So we, we sometimes ask actors when they're working on a revival whether or not they've seen a film or had seen an earlier oh. production. And I'm curious, since you mentioned Guys and Dolls, which was the production in, in I believe it was about 91, 92, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the Jerry Zaks production was so striking – in a case of a show like that, do you look to prior productions? Well, you know, I very cheekily call them previously owned vehicles. And uh, I always ask when I do a film to musical, the director, should I see it? Uh, the answer on Guys and Dolls was no. The answer on Crazy Few, as in Girls Crazy, was no. The answer on um, the producers from Mel Brooks was no, don't look at it. The answer on Young Frankenstein was yes, look at it. Uh, the answer on Grey Gardens was yes, look at it and memorize it. So usually there's a desire, uh, well, from just my references, uh, the usualness from five examples, um, is no, it's a different medium. Uh, we don't want you to copy the film. I'm doing not one but two uh, projects right now that have that were films. I'm doing uh, Nine to Five, which was that wonderful film, and Roth designed, and now we're doing it as a musical. Uh, and the answer was sort of look at it, sort of look at it. Um, and then I'm doing Pal Joey, which was also turned into a, a film. And let's see. You mentioned Leap of Faith before we got on the. There's air. a Leap of Faith, which is of course was that the Steve Martin film. Uh, of course, that was. Obviously, 1970s, and then there's um, Dreamgirls, which I'm, I'm working, and of course that was Broadway, and then a film. So it's you have to be really ask the director, are you supposed to know the the, the I mentioned uh, Grey Gardens as yes, memorize it. What uh, what Michael Greif was channeling through me was that I worked closely with Christine Ebersol because she was really becoming uh, little Edie Beale. And uh, it was very helpful for her to get into those clothes and get into those. So that process was um, really helpful for her. So my job was to help you think she was wearing the and, and ter- changing into those clothes. In truth, I had to make them a whole different way. But uh, you thought you were seeing uh, those iconic images from uh, the Grey Gardens of the Maisel Brothers. Well, not only should you see... The movie, the version or the documentary in the case of, of Grey Gardens. But what about the period you're trying to recreate? Do you do a lot of research into what it looked like in the 1940s when Pal Joey was set or the 50s for Guys and Dolls? That exactly. Sort of that is, that's exactly what I do. And in fact, right now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing, let's see, uh, I've just done Damn Yankees. Uh, we did that. that was, Which uh, was set in the 50s. Exactly, in the 50s. Loved. I had the best time on that. 
uh, at the Encore Summer Stars Encore. It was wonderful. We had the best time. And uh, and then 9 to 5 is came out in 1980. That means it was filmed in 1979. That means it was written sort of in 1978. So you look back to 75, 76, 77, 77. So it's sort of that. So I have to f- get figured, get into that. I did that last year with The Ritz. The Ritz was 1975. And uh, so I sort of started. And, of course, what am I talking about? I lived through it. I was there. That's when I came to New York. So, But you aren't as aware. You don't really think that what you're seeing on your left and your right, you will soon have to put on a stage. But anyway, so I had to go back and, in fact, research my recent past. Uh, Pal Joey is uh, 1940, which is really 1939, 38. I'm doing 36 to 39. And uh, because people don't just wear, a, you know, someone says, oh, this is that day. Not you know, e- not everyone's not buying every- the newest fashion exactly. on the stage. Uh, yeah. Of course, Stocker Channing's playing Vera, and she would, of course, be the one wearing the, the latest fashions. But all the ladies around her would be at least half a decade earlier because that was the type of club in which we find them. But so you do research uh, each and every project, even if you're looking at the I still looked at for Grey Gardens. I still looked at the clothes that um, that uh, Little Edie and Big Edie would have bought at Bergdorf or Bonwit Teller. And I tried to imagine, OK, when did it fall apart for them? And of course, Act One was this beautiful 1941 summer's afternoon. So uh, at, at the height of their magnificence. And so it's a dream. So you look up what was a dream out in the Hamptons in um, in 1941. So you do do a lot of research, and I do big collage boards and show everyone, and because everyone needs to buy into it and want it to happen. But my job is to show them what it it was and what it could be. Of course, with Guys and Dolls, it didn't have to be realistic. It just had to be evocative of that era. But with the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, where you had a bunch of Navy officers you had to clothe pretty realistically. Well, and people, I had to sort of beg the general manager and producer to hire me because that was Jerry's ex. And they said, well, we'll just rent them. And I said, well, actually, what you'll be renting is contemporary. And this was 1943. And um, they were still, because I'd done a little homework. They were still wearing the earlier cut. The navy uh, navy blue was a different color back then, before until the forty. And uh, the like the trousers was a nineteen inch, very wide uh, trouser at the bottom. And uh, you can't find that now. You'll find polyester blends. So actually, you do have to make them, and it does have to be designed. Well, we can just go to a rental place. I said you won't find it. I said. You can you can try it. And besides, these are all subtle differences. All these characters. This is all psychological presentation of different points of view. And I let me at it. <laughs> so uh, they did let me at it, and I had a wonderful time. I learned a lot. We had an advisor from the Navy come down and uh, check everything. The only thing I changed with this advisor's blessing was real navy blue at that time reads black. It reads, really reads black. And especially under stage light, we checked it and with Paul Gallo. And when you have any sort of yellow light on that navy blue, it made it really pitch black. So I chose, I picked up three or four shades lighter blue, which as lit, the way I've described it, looked what everyone agreed looks like navy blue. So that was the only change I did. So when you work with a lighting designer or with a scenic designer, because they all influence what your costume will look like up on stage, Absolutely. who's like top of the top of the Set pile? designer. Set designer always comes first? Absolutely. Right. You build the house, then you put the people in their clothes, and then you turn on the lights. 
sort of like that. Joe Malzeder also, uh, when they set up the United Scenic Artists, our, our union, that's how they entered. It was first just set design. It was called just design, uh-huh. the way they are in England, they say it. But it was set design, then they added costume design, then lighting design, and now the Tony Awards have just acknowledged, in their wisdom, uh, sound design. So it's sort of that's how it goes in order. And I think it's still sort of that way. And I believe in it because I really need to know what the world is. And knowing Tony Walton's Runyon Land, though it horrified me because I thought, there's no color left left for me. <laughs> uh, but that was uh, thrilling to see that world. And uh, I needed to see that before I could get going. So when Tony Walton did design the revival of Guys and Dolls yes. and you saw all the colors being used, how do you then deal with it? Do you try to use the same colors? Do you try to well, interest Well, it was panic land. Uh-huh. And of course I thought, oh goodness, what am I going to do? So, But Tony is so great. He... he copies out all of his uh, beautiful paintings and gave me a copy. And what I did was, believe it or not, I thought Fauvism, painted Gauguin, uh, the Blue Rider School, What? who else used these colors? And so I went back to those painters and others, and actually Gauguin was my most helpful because he had used those colors and uh, that Tony had used. And I got a whole book, many books of Gauguin. I would turn the paintings upside down so I wouldn't know what they were and tried to match them up and say, okay, this nude on the beach with the pink sand and the blue tree and the, you know, green water, this sort of fits in with this Tony Walton scene. And I sort of picked my colors by juxtaposing great paintings next to Tony's and uh, matching them with little paint chips uh, from Pantone. And that's sort of how I did it, believe it or not. And then it came down to, okay, moment of truth. How are you going to find Nathan Lane as Nathan Detroit? And I realized there was only one way to do it. And remember, I had not studied the Broadway show. I had not studied the movie because Jerry Zach said don't. And I said, well, the only way to find our, our hero here is put him in black because everybody else has all the colors. And lo and behold, opening night, Alvin Colt comes up to me, who, of course, designed the original, the late, great Alvin Colt, uh, and said, well, you you copied Nathan, Nathan Detroit uh, exactly. That's exactly what I put him in. I said, oh, my God, did I? And I went and looked at it. And I literally had not looked at it. I was being scrupulous. And he had done the same thing. It was a black suit, black pinstripe suit with a blue tie. Blue tie was in the script. Since we can't talk about all of your shows... I want to ask you if there's ever a show that you've done that you would like to go back and do again. Oh, if not the whole thing, part of it, you bet. <laughs> in other words, do I make mistakes? Well, yes. or just are you at a different place in how you would think about the show? I wasn't presuming mistake, but you went there. But but what what would you go back and look at? Well, again? sometimes you want to re- revisit a. a, a the the only time in recent memory that I've designed a, a single costume that I was able to go back and fix was um, when we were doing uh, the producers in Chicago, out of town, and I didn't um, I I did the Chrysler Building dress as the Grand Duchess Anastasia, and it was all in lace, black lace, and everything, and it it got a great laugh because it was Gary Beach with Mel Brooks lines as directed by Susan Stroman, so of course it's going to get a laugh, but I thought I could do better. And uh, I, I thought I could int- intimate or, or, or suggest the Chrysler building through beading and some Art Deco beading. And I asked if I could do that because it was quite a financial commitment to make that dress. And they said, yes, you can. And so I got to redo it. And it got just a little more laughter. Hmm. It had a wonderful laughter the first. But that's the only time I've, in recent memory I've been able to go back and revisit 
um, a single garment. Mm-hmm. Whole scenes uh, often I look at. I guess I shouldn't admit to, <laughs> to them. But, yes, I'll just say it does happen. And sometimes I get to do it when we do the national tour or the London production. I get to redesign a certain scene or definitely certain certain versions or certain bits of, of costumes. So tell us, what are a couple of those that you've gotten to reimagine other, other than the Chrysler building? Oh, uh, on sh- in Chicago, for instance, um, simple, seemingly simple costumes. Well, I was going to ask you about Chicago because we talked very early on. We talked about designing and when do you design and when is the actor cast. That is a show that now, over more than a decade, mm-hmm. has had so many people in it. And while the t- I would simplistically say perhaps the tuxedos for the men don't change so much. That's correct. But what you have to do for the lead actresses must change every time someone comes in. They do. In fact, in. I just left a, a fitting with Brenda Braxton, and she's uh, made new clothes after two years for her as Velma, and we've even changed them. I can't just sit still. I always want to think of a new thing, and so we did a better neckline on her two dresses. And uh, But, in fact, I did an exhibit at, uh, in Wilmington this past year, Wilmington, North Carolina, the, the Cameron Art Museum, uh, asked me and allowed me and, and honored me with an exhibit of my work. And in one of the rooms, I did all black black clothes, and I did a whole lineup of Roxy dresses. And they were all out of the same stretch lace and same exact stretch lace, but all different, differently interpreted from Melanie Griffith to Brooke Shields to Karen Ziemba um, and to Robin Givens, uh, our first African-American and so, of course, it wasn't against Caucasian white. The black lace looks different against different color. And this was our first uh, African-American Roxy. So I had to reimagine even the underpinning, not just the neckline. So um, I showed all that as variety. So that just supported that. Well, but it first started when we went to, because we did um, London before we did the national tour. And uh, I had felt that I hadn't really finished the show because we did it so quick. Did it for encores. It was the second year of encores. And I sort of brought things with my scissors and my needles and threads and, you know, put angapash things together and it sort of stuck and then we kept polishing. I'm still polishing on Chicago. I'm still making it better. My Mama Mortons get better and better, I must say. Uh, That two-piece suit. Um, I keep redoing it for different shapes, different sizes. Can you imagine Lilius White and Kelly Osborne both playing Mama Morton? That's <laughs> that's a range. And but yet I I designed individual clothes for them. So actually, Chicago keeps me hopping. I'm really happy with that. Well, how typical is that of the various shows? You've done more than 50 Broadway shows. How often do you get a chance to rethink them in a show? Uh, one, one, one that has a long enough run well, that may need some adjustment. Well, I think that's the longest running. I mean, 12 years yeah. is the longest running show the, I've uh, ever worked on. the uh, producers ran for more than six. How, yes, how, it did. How many, how many different Chrysler building dresses did you have to do for different actors well, who were different actually, sizes? Well, actually, David Hasselhoff, I had to rethink it. That is a tall man <laughs> wearing a dress. and I. But all I did was grade it out. I graded the uh, existing architectural, <laughs> sculptural dress to fit him. I mean, he was a good five inches taller than anybody else we'd ever dressed. But, yes, that was rather simple. That was math. But uh, conceptually, well, we've had different Leo Blooms, for instance, and some um, weren't nerdy. Some were big bodybuilders, and I had to nerdize them. And that was tricky. You all had to join hands and say, okay, we're going to go there. And then uh, different different, different things like that. Different uh, ULAs uh, d- need uh, different 
uh, things and so is it a matter of, of totally redesigning the costume or just making little adjustments to seemingly little adjustments uh-huh. sometimes they're from the foundation out uh-huh. uh, a lot of my work is uh, totally I take a Hippocratic oath and I don't tell because that's the secret of the fitting rooms people always say well when are you going to write your book when are you going to you know tell us how it is I said well mm, actually never because I'm in one of those absolutely, uh, you know, confidentiality uh, areas. And, if, uh, if, if the Smithsonian were to call and say, we want to put one William Ivy Long costume on display. Oh, Anita's. Anita's uh, that would be the one from uh, nine. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in my exhibit in Wilmington, I, you entered. There's this one sort of entry room, of course. You enter the entry room. And I put Anita put it on a form, uh, a mannequin with red hair. Paul Hundley made a beautiful red wig. And, of course, Anita was born and raised in Durham, North Carolina. So we're both North Carolina kids, and it was just so appropriate that uh, we honor Anita. And uh, and I think that's the one next to my name in the, the dictionary of costume <laughs> design, if there is one. <laughs> we're only hearing your voice. So for the benefit of all of the people listening to this interview, I need to explain to them that I'm seeing you here in a blue sport coat and khakis and a white button-down shirt and it looks like an old college tie. And That's my uh, uniform. I don't think I've ever seen you in anything else. No, you've seen me in this forever. I just have uh, various versions of it, some with more holes than others, and lots of pockets for stuff. So, uh, I, you know, costume designers, this is one of the reasons I do this. I've been wearing this look. Funny you should mention this. Since I was about 12, and uh, I find that if you have a uniform, if you're a costume designer, a lot of people uh, wear black turtlenecks and black slacks. Tony Walton wears navy blue slacks and navy blue jacket and navy blue shirt. Uh, I think Kathy Zuber also has a very striking uniform that she wears. And those of us who... Uh, who really have caught on to this because if you wear something that is ordin- seemingly simple, ordinary, non-fashion ch- choice like what I'm wearing right now, it puts the actor at ease. If I were to wear something that was flamboyant, in other words, mirroring my perceived personality <laughs> with that <laughs> lavender scarf everyone wants to know, where do I have it tucked away? Um it would take away from that confidence that I am only there for them. So I am strict on wearing this uniform. It always looks the same. Everyone knows that I'm just going to be me in this. And it has lots of pockets for all sorts of gear and different receipts on this side and notes on this side and pencils on this side and stuff like that. So uh, it has a multi-purpose. Um, but basically, it's so the fitting process, the design process is not about me. It helps me go into the background. That's my real answer. As we wrap up, I just want to ask you about one totally different part of your life. You said you wanted to be an architect. You own, by last count, at least a dozen houses, homes, uh-huh. both here in New York and North Carolina and elsewhere. Yeah. Is this like a little hobby of yours, redoing it's homes? It's a big hobby, a big of, hobby mine. of yours. Yeah. I, um, I'm just fascinated with houses. And I'm fascinated with architecture in general, but homes and places for living in specifics. And I, the oldest house that I've restored is 1752 in the Berkshires. And uh, I really tried to find a Jeffersonian uh, brownstone in New York. Unfortunately, mine is, is uh, 1864, 
so it's got that strange Victorian twist. But I try to push it back <laughs> in time. But um, I love moldings. I love details. I love collecting old house bits. People call me up when they're selling their houses. Obviously, you can tell the answer is yes entirely too often. And uh, But sometimes when they're going to tear down a house in North Carolina, they call me and I send people over to, to get all the bits. We photograph it first. Sometimes we can measure it. I have an architect who goes and measures the house, and then we take it apart. And I must say I have barns filled with bits and sometimes an, once or twice an, an entire house. And so I, what am I saving this far? My rainy day? <laughs> I don't know. Fanaticism is hard to explain and uh, peculiar, but, you know, it's my passion. This hour has just flown past. <laughs> I can't believe it's up already. I haven't even had a sip of water yet. <laughs> I noticed. William, thanks so much for being with well, us today. Well, thank you for having me here. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks, William. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.